Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In today's episode, we continue our rewatch of The Leftovers with episode seven of the final season, The Most Powerful Man in the World and His Identical Twin Brother. My name is Justin Hamilton and all of this has just been a pickup line here at Big Squid. Thank you for joining me for a big podcast where we are diving deep into the penultimate episode of The Leftovers. This is it, people. Kevin dies and dies again so that we can all live. Maybe. (laughs) There's a lot to crack into, so I will keep this brief. uh, This season of The Big Squid Podcast finishes next week. And then there will be a little hiatus while I recharge the batteries and get a few things in place for Season 5. We've had some ideas and projects that we've wanted to hit since the beginning of the year. And just due to the ongoing chaos of lockdown and people kind of, you know, reacting to that. And it's just been... It's been tricky. Like, I've really enjoyed this season a lot, but it has been difficult to line things up, etc. And we were just really keen to follow up on some of our ideas and, and finally get them into the rotation. So next week, we'll, of course, not only finish up with The Leftovers, but I'll also welcome Ben Elwood back to finish up our Sophia Coppola series. Uh, that is with the movie On the Rocks, and I'm laughing because this is one of my favourite podcasts that I've ever recorded with Ben. So if you haven't seen the film and you want to join in the fun, by the way, you can just listen. But if you really want to know where we're coming from, you've got a few days. uh, You know, this is coming out before the weekend. So you can go and check out the movie. It's on uh, if you if you're subscribed to Apple Podcasts, you can just go and watch it there. But it's 
so funny and the podcast goes off the rails in a really good way. Um, yeah, you know what? Let me just say this. I can't remember flipping my thoughts on a film in such a drastic way so quickly before and it's really funny and you will hear my brain grinding gears all the way through that episode of the podcast. So it's really fun, really, really fun. So that will all come out next week and then there'll be the little hiatus while we uh, just get everything on track. But for now, it is time to travel to that other place where a man can be an assassin and a president and have the whole fate of the world in his hands. It is time for The Leftovers, episode seven of season three, the most powerful man in the world, and his identical twin brother. The whole branch is flooded. This is it. It's today. Hold on. You can't keep doing this. Yes, you can. Well, look at him. He's going to put up a fight. What about you? I want to go home. The goddamn flood's coming. That's why we're doing this. This is crazy. I love you, son. And let go. We open on Kevin and Nora in a bath together. They're talking about what they want to have happen once they both die. Nora wants a cremation. Kevin wants to be stuffed. You know, like taxidermy. Lily begins crying on the baby monitor. Nora agrees to the stuffing on one condition. She wants to put a beard on him. If she's going to have sex with that abomination, she gets to dress it up how she wants. You want me to grow a beard, he says. Nora giggles and pulls him by his feet under the water of the bath. And we cut to Kevin being dunked into the water at Grace's farm. He breathes out the oxygen, bubbles racing to the surface. Inside, everyone is still passed out from Laurie's drugging. Kevin Sr. wakes. (laughs) He's still face first in his food. There's a storm outside. The doors shake, the wind howls. He checks the time and begins to panic. He has to wake everyone up because today is the day. He's convinced after Laurie drugged him that she talked Kevin out of going through with their plan. And now here comes the floods to kill everyone. Michael points out that Kevin's horse is here. So they race outside to the seesaw where Kevin is strapped, submerged in the water. What are you doing, Kevin Sr. says. Kevin Jr. answers that he's doing what they wanted him to do. His father says that he thought that they'd do it together. Kevin checks with John what he wants him to say to Evie. He repeats the names of Grace's children to her, and he tells his father that he will go to that other place, find Christopher Sunday, learn the dance that will stop the rains and bring it back so his father can save the world. This is all they want. Then let go, says Kevin to his father. For once, Kevin Sr. is quiet. He finally understands what he is asking his son to do. He submerges Kevin into the water, and Kevin dies. He wakes at a beach naked. He's attacked by a Russian man in a tracksuit who drags Kevin out of the water and kicks him in the face. He pulls a knife while speaking Russian to him. Suddenly, his head explodes and a man in combat gear and a parachute runs over. Kevin is afraid the man is going to shoot him, but it turns out it is Dean. He asks if the hut on the beach is Kevin's. Kevin looks, uncertain, and says yes. Yes, it is. Well, aren't you going to invite me in? 
Dean goes first, rifle ready. Kevin following close behind. Dean runs over to a mirror and smashes it. He asks if he has any other reflective surfaces, but Kevin doesn't think so. Dean smashes the sunglasses. No reflective surfaces. Do not look into them. That is how they found him in the first place. Kevin nods, but runs his hand over a scar on his chest, just above where his heart is. He doesn't recognise the scar. Dean goes over to an old-fashioned typewriter and pulls out the sheet that is being worked on. He reads aloud. He wants to know if Kevin's writing a book. Not that it matters, because people in his line of work don't get to retire. Kevin looks at Dean and says that he's an assassin. Dean knows this. It is time to get to work. Who's the target? says Kevin. It is the President of the United States, and based on their intel, in two hours, he's about to start an unsanctioned nuclear war. Dean wants to know if he's going to have trouble putting him down, especially since he's the only man alive who can stop him. Dean also refers to Kevin as Mr. Harvey. Back in this place, here's Kevin Harvey. Kevin asks for one thing in exchange. He needs to find some people. Five kids, Evie and Christopher Sunday. Christopher Sunday, the Prime Minister of Australia, Dean asks. That one might need Kevin having to go straight to his boss to sort that out. Dean gives him an earpiece and tells him to get dressed as the chopper is only a few minutes out. He opens the bag Dean has left for him. It's a suit, just like the one he first wore at the hotel. He looks at it and then a familiar voice begins to do a test on the earpiece. Kevin asks if he knows him but he flashes to the hotel and the night he sang his way back to life. The voice on the other end sings the beginning lyrics of Homeward Bound back to Kevin. Kevin knows who he is. He asks if he remembers what he whispered to Kevin that night on the bridge. You said I was the most powerful man in the world. The voice tells him he very much is that man. And now to complete his mission, Kevin has to look in the mirror. Kevin says he was told not to, but the voice of mission control overrides this initial command. It is not only the voice of mission control, it is the voice of God, or as we know him in The Leftovers, David Burton. So Kevin walks over, picks up a shard of glass, does what he's told, and looks at his reflection. But then his reflection changes, and he has a beard, he's all dressed in white, and his followers... The guilty remnant stand before him. He's in Melbourne, Australia. There's a podium waiting for him. He walks up and reads from a teleprompter, and there is much clapping and cheering. He reads that this isn't his first trip to this world. Every time he's here, he finds it harder and harder to leave. He reads more from the prompter, telling the audience that his party is against marriage and why in their first 100 days he outlawed this reprehensible action. But Kevin doesn't finish the sentence as it finally dawns on him what is happening. I'm the president, he says to celebration from the crowd. He continues to read that early on they believed in smoking and not talking, but this turned out to be stupid. So they changed that. He also understands by outlawing marriage what happens to the children. To decide they had our worldwide essay competition for children to voice their opinions, and they have one of the finalists here today. His essay is entitled, Why I Don't Need a Mummy or a Daddy Anymore. The writer is accompanied by his brothers and sisters, and his name is Liam Playford. It is one of Grace's children. Liam stands up. He's been sitting next to his sibling. All of them aren't wearing shoes. Kevin asks, 
why he's not wearing anything. Why does it matter? asks Liam. Kevin says because his family wants to know. Liam points out that Kevin just said that families don't exist. The audience claps. The clapping is broken up by Evie, dressed in red. A message on the front reads, I remember. She's singing Love Will Bring Us Together. A secret service man walks up and takes Kevin to safety, even though he wants to speak to Evie. They don't have time because they need to get him to a safe place, but Kevin still insists on speaking to her. The secret serviceman acquiesces while the rest of the team protect President Kevin. He doesn't realise the man trying to protect him is the Australian cop that Grace killed, who was also named Kevin Garvey. Kevin receives a call. It turns out the... Ukrainian separatists have stolen a submarine that will give them nuclear capabilities, so they're taking him to a bunker that only he can access with his unique biometrics. Nobody else can open that door unless the president has an identical twin brother, which, of course, would be ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous, says Kevin. They want to move to DEFCON 2, but Kevin isn't sure. Is that worse than DEFCON 3? He is told it is. Kevin decides not to move to DEFCON until they have more information. It is pointed out that the Secretary of Defence won't be happy, but Kevin doesn't care. At the car, Aussie Kevin has brought Evie to talk. So many Kevins in this. He insists that she rides with him. Thunder sounds. It is going to rain here. In the car, President Kevin asks Evie if she knows who he is. Yes. Does she know that he's not really the President of the United States. She does. Kevin leans in. He has a message from her father. Evie loses her confidence. Kevin says that her father, John, wants her to know that she is loved. Is there anything she wants him to pass back to her father? Evie is furious. Her family, her mother, brother and father were killed by a drone strike ordered by his administration. Kevin points out that didn't happen, that she was killed in the drone strike. Evie points out if she's dead, why is she sitting right here? Kevin is confused. He says that she knew he wasn't the president, and Evie says this is correct. He's just a puppet. Even the speech he gave wasn't written by him. It didn't even sound like he believed those words. Kevin denies this, but Evie asks him, what do you want? Kevin sits back. He doesn't know what to say. Suddenly, water begins spilling out of his mouth, his nose. Outside, the rain is falling. Evie bangs on the walls, separating them from the driver, asking them for help to at least stop the car. Water keeps gushing out. He opens the window to the car. Light pours in. He sees moments from his life flash before him, finishing on the image of Kevin sitting on his bed, plastic wrapped around his head. President Kevin leans out of the car and is picked up by John and Michael Murphy. They drag him inside to Grace's home and the rain is already falling. They wrap him in blankets to warm him. He looks at John and tells him that he was just with Evie and delivered his message. Kevin looks at Grace and tells him that he saw all of her children. She asks if they're okay and Kevin says yes. But he also says they don't know what happened to their shoes. Grace doesn't know how to react to this and sits down. Did you get the song? yells Kevin Sr. I was working on it, replies Kevin Jr. They pulled him out of the pond because the rain has caused it to overflow. There's no pond to be dunked back in. Kevin suggests they fill the bath. 
John doesn't want him to do it again, but Kevin Senior points out that now he got what he wanted out of him. He's concerned. The rain is coming. He has to go back. Michael points out that isn't why Kevin is doing it. Why else would I be doing this, says Kevin. Michael doesn't know. In Kevin's mind, he sees Nora sitting in the bath with him. She looks mischievous, playful. Kevin Senior pushes the Murphys out of the bathroom and locks the door. Everyone's got a fucking opinion, says Kevin Senior. Kevin Jr. slips into the bath. He's cold. His father says that he'd do it if he could, but Kevin points out that it can only be him. They need his unique biometrics. Kevin Senior doesn't understand what this means, and Kevin smiles a sad smile at his dad. Neither does he. Kevin Senior tells his son he loves him, and Kevin replies that he loves him too. You're going to have to hold me down, says Kevin. He slips under the water, his father's hands holding him in place, and Kevin dies. Again. Kevin is back at the bunker. He needs to talk to the Prime Minister, Christopher Sunday, but they have to get inside, and then he can contact anyone he wants. They scan his eye, confirming his identity, then Aussie Kevin pulls down a flap in the wall. Now your penis, sir, says Aussie Kevin. President Kevin doesn't understand, but it is explained to him that with advanced plastic surgery, anyone could look like him, but nobody will have thought to copy his penis. (laughs) Kevin isn't impressed as he flops it onto the scanner. His identity is confirmed. Now he only has to answer three questions before he can enter. What was the name of your favourite childhood pet? We didn't have one. My mother was allergic, says President Kevin. Correct. Your favourite movie? The Godfather. Pause. Part 2. Correct. Name your Secretary of Defence. Kevin is stumped for a moment. Paddy Levin. Correct. The bunker door opens and President Kevin heads inside. He walks down the steps deep into the heart of the bunker and up walks Paddy. Good to see you, Mr. President. She tells him the shit has hit the fan. They have to get to the Situation Room. He walks into this secret room and sees a painting of him on the wall, a painting of him as the President. Paddy talks him through the situation, wants to know they're still why they're still only at DEFCON 3. She has the case that has the nuclear football that will give him remote launch capabilities. There's another case that she won't tell Kevin about other than that they should pray that they don't have to open it. In order to arm that device, they have to take them down to DEFCON 1. Ukrainian separatists have taken a nuclear sub and will be ready to launch in an hour. The only option is to strike first and that's why they have to be at DEFCON 1. But he has to make a phone call for first to the Prime Minister of Australia. Patty asks if she can speak to Kevin alone so everyone leaves the room. Once alone, she slaps Kevin and berates him. After all they've worked towards, he's now dicking around. There's a knock at the door and Aussie Kevin comes in to tell them that the vice president is here and wants to talk to him. Patty doesn't want that to happen. She doesn't know about the plan. But President Kevin defies Patty and tells him to let her in, let in the vice president. And it turns out the vice president is Meg. You're being played, sir. She says that she's been in touch with the Kremlin and they've been fed bogus information. Paddy and Meg argue, but President Kevin insists that Paddy tells his vice president the plan. So Paddy explains that it is the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure and since everyone is expecting something to happen, they're going to launch their nukes at the Russians. Then the Russians will retaliate and that will vaporise every man and woman on earth. 
no one wakes up disappointed that nothing happened. They are going to give the world what they want and what they want is to die. Meg points out that they can't do it without going through the Fisher Protocols. Kevin doesn't know what Meg is talking about, so he asks her to prove that she knows what the Fisher Protocol means. Tricky. It is an ethical idea that the key to the nuclear launch pad is embedded near the heart of a volunteer, an innocent person, and in order for the president to press the launch button, he has to extract the key by murdering the volunteer. Meg can't see a volunteer around. Paddy calmly informs him that he will be with them in 15 minutes. Meg is confused, but Kevin understands. He flashes to himself, clean-shaven, the assassin, looking at his suit. He remembers the scar on his chest, right where his heart should be. Meg doesn't understand how this volunteer is going to get through all of the security system. He's my identical twin brother, says President Kevin. Meg realises they've really thought this through. She goes off to put her affairs in order. Kevin wants to make his call, but Paddy insists he declares into the device that they're at DEFCON 1. Suddenly, noises sound, walls come down, doors lock, the phones stop working. His order has put them right into lockdown. President Kevin is furious, so he grabs Paddy's glasses and stares at his reflection. He opens his eyes. He's looking down a gun scope. He's the assassin Kevin now, and he is looking at the bunker entrance. Kevin is called to take out the Secret Service agents, but there isn't anyone on patrol. He looks at the scar on his chest and says to Mission Control that it is a trap that they want to cut him open. Mission Control knows this, but they're trying to protect their asset. Someone is waiting for assassin Kevin on the inside. They want him to go in without a gun because unarmed prophets have been successful and armed prophets have been destroyed. This is a quote from Machiavelli. Mission Control asks assassin Kevin to put his faith in him. So Assassin Kevin goes down, his face is scanned, but the door won't open. The penis measurer waits for him. He flops it out, puts it on. The scanner works, and now the door opens. Kevin heads down the stairs, but is confronted by Aussie Kevin and another secret serviceman. They order for him to get down on the ground, Kevin wondering where Mission Control suddenly is, asking if they're still there. The situation is tense, and then suddenly both Aussie Kevin and the secret serviceman are shot dead. The asset has arrived, and the asset is Meg. Jesus, you look just fucking like him, she says, looking at assassin Kevin. On the way through, she gives him the code to get into the room, 6969, and can he please kill the Secretary of Defence? Assassin Kevin needs to make a call, but Meg needs him to understand what he has inside of him. Kevin says he understands, but Meg points out that the President is cold and merciless. He doesn't give a shit about anyone if he's going to end the world. Assassin Kevin is confused. He thought that's what they all wanted. Meg says that they're all liars, that they don't feel love, saying that they don't feel love or pain. Meg feels pain, but she's also in love, in love with a wonderful man, and that man is God. Tell her that I love her too, says Mission Control to Assassin Kevin. Kevin doesn't. Instead, he wants to know where the comms room is. Meg doesn't understand what he's doing, so Kevin suggests maybe he loves somebody. Meg laughs at him, but insists on knowing where it is. Meg tells him, and he shoots her dead. Mission Control wants to know what is happening. What was that noise? Kevin says, you tell me, you're God. That was just a pickup line. Says God. (laughs) David Burton, Mission Control. Kevin takes the 
earpiece out and leaves it discarded on the floor. Assassin Kevin arrives at the comms room. The officer there thinks he is the president, even though he's surprised that he's shaved. He needs the officer to put him in touch with the Prime Minister and then kicks him out of the room. On the computer, sitting next to the Aboriginal flag, is Christopher Sunday, the Prime Minister of Australia. Kevin speaks to Christopher, says this might be weird to hear, but he's not the Prime Minister, that his father came to him to discover the dance that will stop the rain. Christopher points out that dance doesn't exist. He told his father that when he was alive, but he didn't listen. Kevin needs something, anything to take back to him. Christopher asks him if he truly believes that Kevin Sr. can sing a song that will stop the floods. Assassin Kevin pauses. No, he doesn't believe this. Then why are you here, says Christopher. An alarm sounds and suddenly Assassin Kevin is surrounded by secret servicemen. They come in, guns drawn. He knows what to do. He fights a few of the men and then shoves one of them into the computer, smashing the screen. And he stares into the reflective surface. And now... He's President Kevin sitting alone with Patty, staring into her glasses. She asks for them back, but he pent petulantly. <laughs> the scene made me laugh a lot when I was watching it. Smashes them with one of the phones. I don't want to do this anymore, says Kevin. He's not the President. She's not the Secretary of Defence. Patty points out that she is. He named her to the position that she came out of retirement to help him. She owes him this after what he did for her. Kevin flashes to the bottom of the well where he drowned Paddy and set her free. Kevin wants to know what she's going to help him with and she says that depends on what he wants. Kevin doesn't know. I want to go home, he eventually says. Do you? asks Paddy. She points out that he keeps saying that, but he also keeps returning to this place. She senses a lot of contradictions in him. This is something he'll have to work out with himself. At this point, the Secret Servicemen suddenly come in with a sack over international assassin Kevin's head. They sit him down at the opposite end to President Kevin. The men leave, and once gone, Paddy removes the sack from his head and the two Kevins just look at each other. While Paddy talks, assassin Kevin gives the faintest of nods to the president who looks back initially confused, but then something seems to make sense. Paddy stands in front of the nuclear football and formally explains the Fisher protocols that the president will cut into the skin just below the sternum of the assassin and with his fingers remove the launch key. May God have mercy on your soul if there was a God which there is not, says Paddy. She takes the scalpel over to the president, who says he's not going to fucking kill him. The assassin says that's good, because he's not going to fucking let him. Paddy doesn't like their language, but at the same time, the assassin and the president yell, fuck you. None of this makes sense to President Kevin. He thinks all of this is stupid. He would never volunteer to be cut open like this. I love the way Justin Thoreau says stupid. None of it makes any sense. Yet Paddy points out that Assassin Kevin, while saying he would never want something like this to happen, kept moving forward while knowing that he had something inside of him that only one man, President Kevin, was capable of removing. So why would he do that? Paddy tells President Kevin that it is time to tell him about the book he's been writing. He doesn't know what she's talking about. Assassin Kevin says it is the romance book being written in the beach house in the old-fashioned typewriter. The president remembers that he was there, but it isn't his book. Assassin Kevin is the one writing it. Paddy says they have to come to terms with the fact that they're both writing it. No, we didn't, they yell at the same time. 
Patty decides it has come to this. The CIA were aware that the president was keeping a secret journal uh, behind the painting of Miller Fillmore. President Miller Fillmore, because it could cause trouble with security, she procured the novel. She hands it to the president and asks him to read it, but he refuses. The assassin refuses as well, so Patty decides she will read it out loud. But she needs her glasses, though, and as she plays around trying to put them back together, because remember, they are smashed, President Kevin snaps and grabs the book. He will read it. Untitled romance novel, he says. He is about to begin with chapter one, but Patty suggests he goes to the final page. The end is better. Kevin reads, The port was alive with strange faces. It was dawn by the time he found an old salt willing to part with a vessel for what bullion he had left. A cutter with a Bermuda rig called the Merciful. Its sails ragged and ripped, its compass cracked, its rotten hull just barely able to cut the breakers. But it would be enough to make his escape. Kevin flashes to the moment on the day of the departed when the woman he was having sex with disappeared. Kevin, the assassin, watches from the other end of the table. President Kevin continues to read. It wasn't for another hour when he was a mile from the docks that his thoughts turned back to her. He imagined her alone. By now, she would have searched the house and found it empty. She had suspected it all along, and now she knew he was a coward. Kevin flashes to the plastic around his head, attempting to breathe, attempting to return to this place. A coward dressed in the uniform of a brave man. Kevin flashes to Miracle, at his work as a policeman. Brave enough to cross two oceans and a continent to find her, to fight countless enemies, yet he was terrified. The president stops reading for a moment and glances at himself. He was terrified of her. Kevin remembers kissing Nora at the hotel. To lie beside her, to be comforted by her as he wept, to show her he was small, for her to know that and touch his cheek and whisper words softly into his ear. All of that was a nightmare. All he knew to do was run. And now he can see himself leaving Nora behind in that hotel room. He took a deep breath of the air, tasting the salt on his tongue, and closed his eyes, leaning into the spray as the merciful picked up speed and sailed for the horizon. He was alone, and all was well. President Kevin stumbles slightly on the words. Tears roll down his face. At first he doesn't know where to look, and then he looks at the assassin. His face is also covered in tears. He looks at the president and says, Take this thing out of me. Why? asks the president. So we can never come back to this place again, says the assassin. He understands what he has to do. He takes the scalpel to the assassin who has opened his shirt. They stand opposite each other. The Beach Boys, God only knows, begins to play. The president looks at the assassin, looks at himself. This is still a hard thing to carry out. The assassin gets down on the ground, the president straddles him, and with the scalpel, cuts into the scar. Blood gushes out, and the president slips his fingers inside, searching, pushing, covered in blood, the assassin in pain, until he finally finds the key and removes it. He holds it up, his fingers wet and sticky with blood. The assassin looks at it, and through the pain, says, You fucked up with Nora. 
He remembers her face that night when he came home. After the first two times he had died and gone to that other place, Nora's smiling face, so happy to have him home. President Kevin nods. He knows. The assassin dies. Kevin, crying, stands up and arms the nuclear codes. The launch begins. And Paddy takes him by the hand, leads him outside to watch. As the missiles come streaming down from the sky, so many of them, the sky blew, and finally they hit, and the world ends. It is all white, and that white becomes sheets. Kevin removes them. The sun is shining. He's outside in what is left of the church. John and Michael Murphy are also there asleep. Kevin walks out of the church and looks around. On the roof of Grace's home sits Kevin Sr. Kevin climbs the ladder and sits next to him. I thought you were gone, says his father. He explains it was raining so hard that he got scared and climbed up onto the roof of the veranda. I don't think I'm ready to come down, he says. They sit in silence. You can barely hear the wind. After a moment has passed, Kevin Sr. looks to his son. Now what? he asks. Kevin looks at his father. He doesn't answer. Instead, he looks out at the horizon, his thoughts his own. But he looks relieved. Kevin finally looks at peace. Ah, so now we know this season was never about saving the world. This team of adventurers were the anti-Avengers. They assembled the world's mightiest overthinkers and damaged goods to fight the one foe that never existed. Everything that happened from the death of Christopher Sunday to the murder of Australian police chief Kevin Garvey to Laurie having to drug everyone just so she can talk to her ex-husband and the multiple deaths of our Kevin, none of it had to happen. These were the actions of very sad people drenched in grief trying to find a place in a world that no longer made any sense to them. No, this wasn't about saving the world. How could these people ever hope to achieve that goal even when they can't even save themselves. No, this is all about saving Kevin Garvey, and in the end, there was only one person who could save him. That, of course, ended up being Kevin. Only Kevin could save himself, and he nearly died trying. And why would he risk his life to keep returning to this place? We see it all in this episode, beginning with the playful way that Nora flirts with him in the bath. They're so relaxed. That might actually be the happiest scene of anyone in the entire series. They're in such a good groove that when Lily cries on the baby monitor, Nora's relaxed and allows her little girl to settle on her own. Kevin asks Nora what she wants to happen after she dies, and then she does something very few people in this episode do. She asks Kevin what he wants, and he gives a jokey answer, and Nora replies in kind, but even her offhand remark about having a beard ends up something he does. Kevin never knew what he wanted. He is programmed to do what those around want him to do instead. And this is how we end up in this mess. And what a mess it is to think he was willing to drown himself on his own in the chance he could find out what happened to the play for children's shoes, that he could pass on John's message to Evie, that he could find that dance that will stop the rains that never, never existed in the first place. 
Of course, in this world, he's the most powerful man. In the real world, he does what everyone wants him to do. So here is where the afterlife bends to his personality or where his fragile mind creates a perfect place for him to heal from his terrible injuries, depending on how you want to look at it. I know some people like it as a supernatural place. Some people like it as a psychological. Look, to be honest, I kind of oscillate. I, I feel like maybe it's a bit of both. I, I like the idea that it's, uh, as Lindelof has mentioned in previous um, interviews that I've seen, and uh, he kind of feels like maybe it's the the Australian idea of the, uh, or the Aboriginal idea I should uh, be uh, more direct about of the dream time, you know. So, you know, I, as I said, that kind of ticks both boxes for me. It's it's a little bit of cheating, I guess, but uh, that's what I love about um, this series, that it kind of allows you to find uh, where you feel uh, that it should be. You can also understand why he walked away from David Burton slash God in disgust when he whispered into his ear that he is the most powerful man in the world. He was weighed down at that point by the guilt and sadness of Paddy. How could he be all-powerful if he had to throw a little girl into a well? But this time back, he's in control as the man with his finger on the button and an action hero who can take down any enemy. Something that is interesting, though, is that there is a Kevin in this place that we don't see. This is the Kevin that writes romance novels, that digs into the well of his subconscious and knows his flaws, knows his insecurities, and knows how to express them through his fiction. This is a skill that most authors have. Isn't this what probably the writers of this show are doing? They must all be dealing with different types of grief in their lives and channeling them into works of fiction, this work of fiction in particular. And we don't need to see that Kevin, because, you know, he's the, like, he's probably the least interesting to watch. <laughs> you know, at least the president and the assassin Kevin are doing stuff, but do, do we really want to watch romance novel Kevin typing and probably crying as he's typing? There's a lot of crying in this. It's, 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 uh, it's really, um, uh, full on, uh, like, not in a bad way, but it is one of those things where you're watching it and you're going, oh, God, he's so sad. The Kevin that longs for stability, even if he is afraid of it. That's who is uh, kind of romantic Kevin. He he loved his mum as a child and she died leaving him alone. He loved his father, but he's a narcissist with little empathy who isn't there emotionally and then soon goes crazy and isn't there mentally either. Kevin's trip to this place reveals all the different facets of him over and over again. And as I said, there is a Kevin that does long for stability regardless of the fear he has about that. But this place doesn't just reveal aspects of Kevin, it also reveals the truth of the world. Kevin knows what is asked of him, and what does he learn? Evie has no use for his message, she's dead. It doesn't matter. Kevin is gracious when he returns to John and tells him that he passed on the message, but leaves out the important part where Evie just isn't interested. The look on poor Grace's face, though, when she discovers that nobody knows where the shoes went. Her son says, why does it matter? And that is the correct question. It doesn't matter. Not at all. Knowing where the shoes went will not bring them back. Finding ways to distract yourself from grief is not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to be judicious. When you allow yourself to be consumed by the distractions, then it means you don't deal with your grief and it can cause problems, not the least of which resulted in an innocent police chief being murdered and, you know, another cop being knocked out. Like, there's been a lot of violence, you know, because of them not dealing with their grief. 
Unfortunately, Kevin can't lie when he gets back. Like, what else is there to say? If he if he lied, that probably would have only led to more heartache. This is something that Grace has to come to terms with. And then there is Christopher Sunday telling Kevin that he already knew that there was no darts. He knows that his father can't do anything. There's, there's like, Kevin Senior's insane. Like, he has proper mental health issues. Kevin Jr. knows he's got them, and his father has them dialed up to the max. His father was always incorrect. There was nothing to take back to him. He'd created a narrative in his head and was determined to follow it through to the end. In the end, when Tony the Chicken was pecking at the cassette that Kevin had, you know, audio on, maybe that chicken was just trying to tell Kevin Sr., find your son, mate, mend the bridges, connect. Be there for him like you weren't before. Maybe Tony the Chicken didn't know what the fuck was going on. It also makes sense that he calls on Paddy to help him and has Meg buried deep down there as well. These women have caused him much consternation over the last two seasons, so to see them return and be working with him and against him in this place makes a lot of sense. Paddy helps him do what he needs to do, just like when she offered advice as a young child about how she should be pushed into the well. Meg helps him through the maze to solve his father's issues. Even Dean coming back makes sense. He needs that action man to help him digest the weirder aspects of his mission, like not looking at reflective surfaces. But this all comes down to the dual aspects of Kevin. There was only one way he could deal with his cowardice, control his self-destructive urges, and that was by doing it himself. The look of pain on his face as he hears the story that he wrote being read aloud, read apart from him and by him is all he needs. In the end, Kevin has to kill himself to live and he has to allow himself to be murdered to move forward. If he destroys this place, then how can he return? He might have been pushed into it by his savage psyche manifested in Paddy or manipulated by his subconscious by way of the voice of God. But Kevin, in spite of his trials and tribulations, is a man of action and it comes down to him being able to follow through on his own. In the end, you can't rely on anyone. If you want real change, you have to take control of your life and do it yourself. And this is what Kevin finally does. And it is ugly. It is brutal. Being honest with yourself, truly honest can be so confronting. Eventually, it can also be rewarding if you do it properly. And this time, by leaving a scorched earth policy, Kevin finally does it right. Why be dwelling with the dead while the living are waiting for you in the real world? This whole season has been a beautiful example of absurdism. In philosophy, the absurd refers to the conflict between the human tendency to see inherent value and meaning in life and the human inability to find these with any certainty. We open the season with a woman standing alone on a roof convinced Jesus was coming to take her away. We end this season with a man convinced that he could save the world and realising in the end there was nothing he could do and nothing happened. These two people, separated by centuries, looking for patterns in the universe that just weren't there. Yet where the woman didn't receive anything, Kevin Senior did receive a message. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't God. It was his son, who still loves him very much. It is Kevin Jr. that can give his father solace. When he asks, what's next? There is only one real answer. It is time to invest in the people around you, in the people that love you and do right by them. They in turn will hopefully do right by you too. 
Kevin looks at peace. He understands finally that he doesn't have to do what everyone else wants, that sometimes he's been heroic and sometimes he's been a coward, but he's always been human and that's okay. Yet he knows he fucked up with Nora and now that she's possibly used that machine and gone away to that other place, there's the potential that he will never find his true love again to make things right like they both deserve. All right, squid bits time. Quite a few, as you can imagine, in such a dense episode. Oh, God, I love this episode so much. I love every journey back to that place. And, you know, if they'd only done it once, like the whole series, really. (laughs) You know how I have kept saying to you when I watched it when it was first aired. I thought we were only getting one season and I was fine with that. Then we got a second season and I was wrapped. And then we got a third season and I was over the moon and going to that place, I thought, you know, International Assassin, one of my favourite episodes of TV ever, as a one-off, that's brilliant. Then he goes back and sings himself back to life. And I was like, oh, that was a tasty little treat. And then to get another episode like this, oh, like, I just love it. Love it so much. So, anyway, lots of squid bits. Uh, yes, we were back to the original music at the start of the show. I always liked that music. I was never down on that. I'm not down on anything in this TV series. There's not one thing I would change. Even, no, no nothing. I, I don't even want more episodes. I'm, I'm completely fine with the amount of episodes I have as well. That's how much I love it. In the other world, Kevin not only kills himself, but also allows himself to be killed, thus sacrificing himself for the greater good. When Kevin wakes, he's rolled up in a white cloth in a church. His father tells him he thought he was dead, and possibly John and Michael did too. For someone who isn't the Messiah, his passion, death, and resurrection (laughs) recall what happened to Jesus in the Gospels pretty closely. Is there some meta-commentary going on when Kevin points out his favourite movie is The Godfather 2, considering this is a full-length sequel to International Assassin? Maybe not. That's a fun thing to think. Uh, The Fisher Protocol is a real-life proposal by the late academic and attorney Roger Fisher from a 1981 edition of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Fisher's point was that requiring the president to commit murder with his own hands would force the president to acknowledge and consider the reality of taking innocent life rather than allowing the act of releasing nuclear weapons to remain an abstract matter of reciting codes and giving commands. This is interesting. David Burton actually gets the quote from Machiavelli wrong. This comes from his 16th century political treatise called The Prince, whose general theme is about accepting the aims of princes such as glory and survival, justifying the use of immoral means to achieve those ends. The real quote is, Hence it is that all armed prophets have conquered and the unarmed ones have been destroyed. There are a couple of reasons that the quote is wrong. So if David Burton is God, maybe he's deliberately misleading Kevin to achieve what he wants. If this is Kevin's subconscious, then maybe it is his id ego and superego working in conjunction to send him on the right path, which is to ultimately destroy this place so he can never come back. If it is Kevin's subconscious, maybe he just remembered the quote incorrectly. And if this is a real place, and like when I say real, it's in inverted commas, maybe this is just this world reflecting life, but 
back to front. So like the reflective surfaces of which this episode is bathed in, maybe that's why the quote is back to front. So that's up to you. Uh, I don't think there's any real correct uh, decision on that, but I'd be curious to know what you think. Let me know at the uh, at the uh, private Big Squid page or on the open page, whichever one suits you. Uh, Paddy sees two Kevins and begins singing the theme song to the Paddy Duke show where Paddy played identical cousins. Then the end credits roll and we hear Paddy Duke sing the end of the world. I think that was in, um, I think that was used really effectively in an episode of Mad Men as well. Oh, Mad Men. Another show I, I love. When Paddy references the powers of the president according to the Constitution, these are all correct. Paddy refers to the portrait of the 13th president, Millard Fillmore, who served from 19, uh, sorry, from 1850 to 1853. Meg continues the theme throughout the season of people looking at Kevin and subtly referring to him as Jesus. So this time she sees assassin Kevin and says, Jesus, you look exactly like him. All of those have been a lot of fun. I remember after the first episode, I told you to keep the story about Justin Thoreau's junk in his tracksuit pants uh, in the back of your head. Well, we got two pretty great payoffs to this in the episode. I thought it was really funny at the time. There have been a few jokes throughout about Kevin's manhood, but I should also point out that Lindelof has in recent years expressed regret about making these jokes because they always made Justin Thoreau feel a bit awkward. And I get where Lindelof is coming from. Like I, I like I honestly do. Intellectually, I honestly do. I understand it. I understand it emotionally as well. But I also have to say it's a shame because I always laugh. I always laugh when like there was even the episode, uh, I think it was International Assassin, wasn't it? When they were checking him for weapons and the guy pats him around the crotch area and kind of gives him a nod as if to say, Jesus, right. Maybe you do have a weapon with you. But anyway, I still laugh at it. And I guess this makes me a bad person. Feel free to keep that thought to yourself. You don't have to let me know. I'll (laughs) let my up and down emotions during lockdown sort that one out for me. Uh, In this episode, God said that him uh, referring to himself as God was just a line to pick up girls. After spending enough time with David Burton on the Tasmanian Lion sex party boat, that feels like it might actually be correct. Keeping the Jesus theme running, there is the substitution hypothesis or twin hypothesis that states the sightings of a risen Jesus are explained not by physical resurrection, but by existence of a different person. It is a position held by some Gnostics in the first to third century and some modern Muslims. There is a Gnostic text called the Book of Thomas the Contender that cites Jesus talking to Thomas the Apostle saying, it has been said that you are my twin and true companion. And there is also a third century text called uh, Acts Actos, uh, uh, Acts of Thomas. Uh, so annoying when you've... Um, it's Acts of Thomas, yes. Uh, put a spelling error in and then it throws you. Anyway, uh, there is a third century text called Acts of Thomas, which contains a moment where the risen Jesus appears in the likeness of Thomas the Apostle. There is also the second treatise of the great Seth, which is another Gnostic text from the third century that claims Simon of Cyrene was crucified in the place of Jesus and even has Jesus saying, I was altering my shapes, changing from form to form. So if Jesus was in the X-Men, he'd be Mystique. There you go. That's pretty cool. Superhero Jesus. And if 
you're interested in the idea of Jesus being a twin, if you're just looking for some uh, really interesting uh, and entertaining reading, can I suggest Philip Pullman's novel, The Great Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ? If you're a fan of Philip Pullman, well, well, you probably already read this. Who am I kidding? Uh, But if you haven't, uh, check it out. It's a it's a really good read. So yeah, I won't say anything more, but definitely worthwhile reading if that uh, is something that piques your interest. Dean telling Kevin not to look at reflective surfaces as they and I guess mirrors in general have always been a symbol for inner reality or having to face yourself, etc. That kind of thing. In Twin Peaks. Mirrors can also hide doppelgangers. Here they allow Kevin to move from one aspect of himself to another. I, you know, one of the things I like in this episode is how adept he becomes at using it too. It's not um, like the first time it happens, he's like, oh, okay, this is what I have to do. And then he just kind of knows how to do it. And that's, that's kind of fun as well. Uh, Dean underlines that... Kevin is the only man alive who can stop the president, and that makes sense because in this place, Kevin is literally the only person who is actually alive. Burton whispering in the International Assassin episode that Kevin is the most powerful man in the world is a mystery that is paid off, and I'm guessing you weren't expecting that. Turns out he was the president as well. Uh, It's always nice when things kind of get paid off that you're not expecting. Hmm... Hmm, I wonder why I said that. President Kevin's speech is full of double meanings, including travelling to Australia, uh, this other world, etc. Keep in mind that Evie had to... What Evie had to say? Uh, in regards to her family being murdered in drone strikes while she lived? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Two things. Two things that make you go, hmm... President Kevin being asked who the Secretary of State is means he is, in fact, the one who calls Paddy back from the dead or out of retirement, as she says, or his deep subconscious to help him through this final stage. Christopher Sunday talks to Kevin through a screen, just like his father initially did. Uh, His father did it while he was tripped out on drugs, and Christopher is possibly a part of the dreaming. We've already kind of talked about that. So maybe that is, you know, like a nice little you don't have to explain it but this is a connection and uh you know if they're all part of the dream time and then using screens anyway i just kind of like that i don't really need it explained i don't even need anything kind of uh pointed out etc i just i just love all of this uh kevin killing his twin to save the better part of himself reflects the question dr eden asked nora about killing one twin so the other can cure cancer as uh, mentioned before, the Beach Boys masterpiece, God Only Knows, has the line, God only knows what I'd be without you, which is represented by both versions of Kevin. Uh, I have a particularly uh, strong uh, love of that song. Um, we used uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows as the... Uh, opening and closing tracks of the middle parts of Three Colours Hamo uh, back in the day. The, that was It was the Beatles uh, for the first show. It was the Beach Boys for the second. And lo and behold, it was David Bowie. It was all Bs for all three shows. Um, anyway, just some extra stuff about me in case you were wondering. <laughs> Uh, 
what are we up to? Uh, the white dress Kevin kills the black dress Kevin, recalling the black and white motif from Lost, if you're a fan of Lost, as I was. A bearded Kevin kills a clean-shaven Kevin, which makes sense because that's the Kevin that Nora wanted most. That's the, the Kevin that she likes the most. Uh, but importantly, it is the Kevin that wants the normal life who kills the Kevin who feels alive in this shadow world. Uh, oh, yeah, the Russian on the beach Uh, He is saying, you killed my father, you killed my mother, you killed my brother, and now I'm going to kill you, Kevin Harvey. (laughs) The presidential address was shot between the Royal Exhibition Building and the Melbourne Museum. I used to walk through there all the time, all the time. And the IMAX building is just up the road from there, which, as you can guess, I have been in that place often. Now, you know what? I used to love going to IMAX, but the last few times I went there, which is a while ago, every time, the like, it was like three times in a row and the movie broke down or they had two, like, I remember once watching, what was the movie? They had, they had two parts of the movie playing at the same time and they never kind of, you know, like they're expensive tickets. Anyway... I would not go there anymore. <laughs> you can't you can't spend forty forty five dollars on a ticket and have fucking two reels playing at the same time. Anyway, I'd forgotten about that. No, I'm in a good mood. I'm not going to get angry about that now. Let's just keep moving. Uh, oh yeah, here you go. I auditioned for a role that would have been opposite Kevin Garvey Senior as a happy Christian farmer. <laughs> Can you see me as a happy Christian farmer? But uh, I obviously did not get the role. Uh, but thankfully the role never even appeared in the series. And I also, while I was watching this season the first time, I remember being weirdly relieved that I hadn't gotten that role and before I even realised that that role wasn't going to be in the show. Sometimes you don't... Like, imagine if I went and did it and, uh, I don't know, maybe someone was a dick to me or or the director was an arsehole or, you know... Maybe I or I wasn't very good, and then and then something that you love is just a little bit tainted, isn't it? So I I felt really relieved afterwards. Uh, I don't know what that says about me, but that's honestly how I ended up. Uh, Ukrainian separatists are the scapegoats to bring about the end of the world, which is I guess a callback to International Assassin, where she talked, uh, where Patty talked about her rival on Jeopardy, and remember uh, the person she went up against. Uh, lost by incorrectly guessing what is the Ukraine. So maybe that's how that all comes together. Meg tells assassin Kevin that President Kevin is merciless. The boat in Kevin's untitled romance novel is also known as the Merciful. So that's interesting. Uh, The communications officer's name, according to his tag, is S. Lyons. This might be a reference to the French sailor who launched the nuclear missile, whose name tag read P. Lyon. Assassin Kevin being led into the room with a black hood over his head calls back to the man in the Mapleton police uniform being escorted out of Paddy's suite with a hood over his head in International Assassin. There appear to be two different versions of the romance novel. In the version Dean reads out, the protagonist is going to use the boat, The Merciful, to find his love, whereas in the one Kevin reads, uh, the protagonist is using The Merciful to escape and be alone. Um, as we've already said, the two Kevins sitting on the roof together, that is Kevin Jr. and Kevin Sr., calls back to the Millerite on the roof in the opening sequence of the season. Uh, that's also the second time Love Will Keep Us Together is in the show. It was first heard in the episode Two Boats and a Helicopter, uh, just after the moment where Matt beats up the dude who tries to steal his money in the casino parking lot. 
And uh, this is funny. Uh, this is your final squid bit. Uh, Lindelof said that he thinks that Grace Playford went to jail after the events of the show, but probably only got six months jail time and like 10 years of community service because the judge in that jurisdiction hated that Aussie Kevin because he was an infamous arsehole. <laughs> and Lindelof also suggests that maybe Kevin Senior fled or was deported for assaulting Officer Giran, or as we know him, Officer Koala Fart. And there you have it. We're done for another episode and only have one to go. One! Can you believe we're here already? I am equal parts excited, especially for the people watching this for the first time. Uh, but, you know, I'm sad that we're coming to the end. I've really loved producing these podcasts for you. But, you know, with an ending comes new beginnings, so that is what we can look forward to. We still have one to go, though, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Maybe I should just tell myself not to get ahead of myself in the weepy stakes. So if you're enjoying the work of my friends and uh, all the stuff that I'm doing here, please leave us a top review at Apple Podcasts or whichever streaming service you use to listen to us. So we'll be back next week. Uh, with our finale. It's a big, big week of finales, isn't it? Of uh, Sophia Coppola and The Leftovers. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, this week, I'm leaving you with a quote from Albert Camus, the philosopher that not only continues our themed quotes for this final season of The Leftovers, but is a man who stated that we should embrace the absurd condition of human existence. And Camus felt perfect for this episode. He wrote, In the depth of winter, I finally learned that within me there lay an invincible summer. Until then. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.